This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by Health IQ, the only company that measures your knowledge of healthy living and then uses it to save you money. Backed by popular demand, my girlfriend Ellie is going to take another quiz with me, this time on cold remedies. Although research is mixed, the herb echinacea added to many cold remedies might shorten severity and duration of colds if taken when. Before cold starts, when cold is at its worst, at first sign of a cold, when fever sets in. I'm going to say at first sign of a cold. Answer correct. My grandpa had a saying about colds. If you take care of yourself and get enough rest, cold will last seven days. And if you don't, a week. (laughs) That's kind of how I feel about echinacea. (laughs) If you think you know which cold remedies are based on more than the placebo effect, go to healthiq.com slash outside and take the quiz. That's healthiq.com slash outside. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the science of survival. You're not supposed to survive an unsheltered night out on Mount Everest's death zone. It's not the brush with death zone. Or it's not supposed to be. But in 2006, Australian climber Lincoln Hall came about as close as you can come to joining the hundreds who've died there without actually doing it. When a team of climbers found him, he was so hypothermic that he was ripping off his clothes. Just a few minutes later, and he would have certainly died. But they managed to save him, bring him back down the mountain. It's an amazing, iconic survival story, and one outside told in the magazine back when it happened. But then last week, the podcast Out There, which, if you like this one, should be on your radar, told the story from the perspective of one of the climbers who found Lincoln Hall. And the story is so interesting, and the questions it raises are so different from your typical survival story, that we're just going to play it for you. The story comes from producer Phoebe Flanagan, who we're going to be working with on a special project this spring. But for now, her story starts with Miles Osborne, a well-traveled, by all accounts brilliant, and let's just say it, impossibly handsome professor at the University of Colorado. Here's Phoebe. Okay, Miles would hate everything that we just said about him. He does not like to talk about himself. He dodges compliments, he cringes at the thought of posting personal updates on Facebook, and as a kid, he was kind of a wimp. No, I was terrified as a child. There, there are many stories that my brothers and sister will, will not let me forget of uh, going to swimming lessons and me holding onto the side of the pool and screaming. Miles grew up second to youngest of six. He lived in a small village on the south coast of England, and his dad was a Navy man who spent much of the year traveling. So he would always um, be in foreign countries, um, you know, writing us postcards and sending things back to the school where we were. So, so we were very aware that, that there was this wider world out there. As he got older, Miles became more and more curious about that world, the one that existed beyond the foggy coastline of his hometown. He wanted to see it for himself. So at 18, he traveled to Namibia for three months. After that, he took on scuba diving, then mountain climbing. He tackled Kilimanjaro, Rainier, Denali, and in 2004, he set his sights on the mother of all summits, Mount Everest. At the time, Miles was still pretty green as a climber, and he didn't have much money. 
He was just starting grad school, so he planned to go the low-budget route. Below budget on Everest still means $20,000. Miles spent the next two years working odd jobs on top of his studies to scrape together the cash. Even so, he barely saved up enough. When I left uh, the U.S., I think I had, I remember the number, I think it was 82 bucks in my bank account. So, no money to spare and a tough mountain ahead of him. Now, experienced climbers will tell you that Everest isn't actually the most technical climb, but that doesn't make it safe. You've probably read news stories about lives lost on the mountain. On average, seven climbers die each season. That's less than 1% of the people who actually attempt the mountain, but still, over the years, almost 300 people have lost their lives trying to get to the top. 300. As a side note, many of their bodies remain on the mountain. It makes sense. They're often too difficult to remove. But still, it's a grim reminder to any who might follow in their footsteps that this is a dangerous place. Miles knew all this, but he says he wasn't really afraid. There's always, um, you know, of course, anything can go wrong. But we're talking about, you know, probably four, four or five hundred climbers or something on the mountain. By the numbers, the odds of still something going wrong are still quite small. Um, so, so there are risks, but I think that they are they are mitigated by by being smart. Um, and you know, if you're going to be unlucky, you're going to be unlucky, and there's nothing that that you can really do about that anyway. What Miles didn't consider was that it might not be his own life on the line. As it turns out, the hardest thing he had to do on Everest involved making a decision about the life of another climber. It's the kind of choice that many of us face on a smaller scale in our daily lives. Do you drive past the stranded motorist or stop and help? But on Mount Everest, the stakes are much higher. And whatever you choose, you'll have to live with it for the rest of your life. In late March of 2006, Miles began his journey. He planned to climb Everest from the north. And when he arrived in Tibet, the landscape blew him away. You know, the, the, the thing that I will never forget about Tibet is the, the scale of it. You have these extraordinary mountains in the background that are so much larger than anything that you can imagine. And then the plateau just stretches out for, um, as, as far as you can see, this huge, flat, expansive, sort of dusty land um, that was, it, it just felt bigger than anything that I'd seen before. The base camp in Tibet sits right beneath Everest North Face, on a wide gravel plateau, about two miles long by half a mile wide. It's like a moonscape, rocky and barren. There's no trees there, few plants. In fact, the only real color around comes from man-made signs and tents, the prayer flags forever flapping in the wind. It's not so much the temperature, but it's the wind that really, um, that, 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 that you notice. It's just this constant um, constant thing in the back of your ears and in your head that you're always hearing the wind. And it's not, it's not particularly unsettling. It, it, it's almost sort of comforting that there is this sort of natural factor out there beyond sort of a stillness, perhaps. And you can, you can see, once you get to base camp and you're looking at the top of Everest, you can see this huge, um, you know, couple of kilometer plume coming off the peak, which is the wind coming across the summit at, at sort of, you know, maybe 150, 200 miles an hour. And that's got to drop before you can go to the top. But it's a reminder that you are, you are really treading somewhere that you shouldn't be 
for a very short window each season. A very short window. What Miles is saying is that there are only a few days out of the year when it's possible to get to the top of Mount Everest. The peak is so high that it actually protrudes into the stratosphere. And most of the year, the summit is whipped by hurricane-forced winds. Winds that could kill a climber in minutes. It's only during a week-long period on either end of monsoon season that winds on Everest summit die down enough for climbers to take their shot at standing on the roof of the world. Miles spent the first few days in Tibet at base camp, drinking water, eating a lot, adjusting to the altitude. He was preparing to set out with a small team, led by world-famous American mountaineer Dan Mazur. And spirits were high. People are excited. There are very few people who are there who have not put in significant amounts of effort. You're healthy, you're not injured, you've made it there. So in some ways, you've, you've done the bit that you really were worried was going to stop you. Soon, they started climbing, making trips up to the first camp, dropping gear, coming back down, resting, always taking two steps forward, one step back. And just trying to um, run this fine line between getting your body used to the altitude, but not spending so much time high on the mountain that you start um, not sleeping and losing muscle mass and getting weaker. There's a kind of a fine balance that has to be struck there. Miles says he was finding that balance. But as three weeks dragged into four, then five, he began to worry. I wasn't necessarily concerned about my physical shape, which I felt was fine. Um, Not great, but fine. Uh, I was more, and what everybody obsesses about is, are you going to get an opportunity to go to the top of the mountain? Is the weather going to do what it needs to do? By the time you get to May, it's all anybody's talking about. You know, when's the window going to be? When are we going to be able to go to the top? So, yeah, they were getting antsy. And meanwhile something unnerving was going on. A lot of people were dying, and not just on their way to the top. By the end of the season, the mountain had claimed 11 lives, from altitude and illness and ice falls. It was the deadliest year in almost a decade. And as Miles and his team inched toward their own summit push, they kept hearing about death after death after death. We were pretty low budget and didn't have much in the way of tech or radios and things like that. So you would hear stories, but we never really quite knew what was going on. Did When you did hear about those sorts of things, do you remember what you thought? Yeah, you just think it won't happen to you. <laughs> it's just that it's funny. It's one of those things that, you know, it's obviously terrible that it's happened and you really feel for the people who are involved. But um, there's also a sort of sense of gratitude that that A, this hasn't happened to you, and maybe, maybe, you know, on some level, if the mountain is going to take a few people this year, maybe, you know, maybe that's it. Maybe it wasn't you. Um, Yeah, it's kind of an odd mindset to be in. One death in particular sparked something of an international media storm that year. In mid-May, an English climber named David Sharp succumbed to cold and altitude sickness as he descended from a summit push. He took refuge in a cave, And remember how I said there were still about 300 bodies left on Everest? Sharp found himself next to the body of a dead climber, known as Green Boots. And instead of being helped, he was abandoned there, allegedly left for dead by almost 40 others on their way to the top. The story that came out over the next few weeks turned out to be more complicated. Many of the climbers who passed David Sharp said they hadn't seen him there, or they thought he was already dead. And some had tried to help. But after the first reports about David Sharp's death came out, 
people on the ground were outraged. Media pundits weighed in, asking whether Everest had become morally corrupt. And several big shots in the mountaineering world decried the behavior of the climbers who'd passed David Sharp as callous and horrifying. To most of us down here at sea level, it does seem callous and horrifying. After all, how could anyone care more about getting to the top of a mountain than the life of another person? But it's not so cut and dried. And I'm going to unpack this for you a little bit, because to understand what happens next to Miles, you have to understand that there are actually a number of reasons why you might rationally pass a climber in distress. The first is self-preservation. Once you get above 25,000 feet, you're in Everest's death zone. At that altitude, your brain and heart start to swell, and exposed flesh can freeze instantly. The air is so thin that even with bottled oxygen, any movement is like running on a treadmill while breathing through a straw. It's hard enough to keep yourself alive, let alone someone else. And as any first aid course will tell you, it's not a good idea to help someone else if it puts your own life in danger. Because if something goes wrong, then you've just created another patient, not made things better. Another factor here is risk. Every climber who sets out to tackle Everest knows they're taking on a substantial personal risk. David Sharp, the guy who was left for dead, had a particularly risky climb. He was attempting the mountain solo, without a climbing partner, Sherpas, or even a radio. So should his risk and his costly rescue really come at the expense of other teams and guides who have their own clients that they're busy trying to keep alive? Suffice it to say, the moral territory is more complicated than it might first appear. But let's get back to Miles. By now, it's getting into late May, and Miles' team has been on the mountain for nearly a month and a half. That's pretty typical for Everest, but they were getting to the end of their supplies and the end of the season. Remember that window of time where the winds die down and you can actually get to the top of Everest? It was upon them, but coming to a close. This was probably the 20, I think it was the 25th of May. We were probably one of the only groups left on the mountain at that point. Um, we had tried to go to the summit the week before. Um, we got driven back by weather um, at the high camp. It was six nights before the weather cleared up, enough for them to take another stab at the top. That's six nights just sitting in a tent, waiting, hoping. By the time the weather did clear... Nearly all of the other climbers on the mountain had packed up and gone home. As they prepared for their final push, Miles and his team knew that it would be their very last chance. Now, just imagine that for a moment. You've spent years, literally years, preparing for this trip. You've poured all of the money, all the time that you don't really have into getting here. This is your one shot at that once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Imagine how much hope and anxiety and fear is riding on it. Finally, they got their chance. At 11.30 p.m. on the night of May 25th, Miles and his team set out. The skies were clear, the air thin and brilliantly cold. So cold that every few minutes, Miles had to check to make sure his oxygen mask and regulator hadn't frozen. They climbed through the night, 
carefully stepping across a narrow ridge that dropped off thousands of feet on either side. And then they stumbled across something awful. A human body, frozen to the mountain. It's quite a creepy thing seeing these things because if you're not, you know, you're on this sort of knife edge ridge at four in the morning and it's dark and you're climbing in this headlamp and you have this little bubble of light around yourself. Um, and, you know, somebody who's a big fan of horror movies, I just have, I'm absolutely convinced these bodies are just going to pop up and start walking around. They later found out that this was the body of David Sharp, that British climber whose death had caused such an outcry earlier that season. And no, he didn't pop up and start walking around. But as it would turn out, Miles' fear of a horror movie scenario wasn't actually so far from the truth. Miles and his team passed the body of David Sharp. They worked up a sweat, scaling the boulders of the first step, and climbed on into the dawn. It's, by Everest standards, it's a, it's a warm, beautiful morning. A balmy six degrees below zero. It's pretty still, the sun's starting to come up. But something was about to happen. And so it was just as the dawn was breaking and we came around a rock. And I could not believe that I, I was seeing what, what, what my eyes were telling me I was seeing. At first, it just looked like a piece of bright fabric. And so I thought, you know, is it a bit of tense or something? Am I looking at something else? And then as you get closer, you realize it's a guy who's actively in the process of removing his clothes as quickly as he can. And then you're sure that something funky is going on because... A, there can't be a person here, and B, if there was a person here, why would they be removing their clothes at 8,700 meters on Everest? And he says, you know, we approach this guy and he goes, I bet you're surprised to see me here. And uh, it was quite an extraordinary statement because it was tremendously prescient, it was true, um, and it was also sort of the last coherent thing that he said for much of the next couple of hours because it it was almost sort of a window of, of clarity in this cloud that was clearly in his mind. The man was shivering uncontrollably, but didn't want to keep his gloves or hat on. His head jerked and bobbed. His eyes darted about, unfocused. And his fingers were waxy and opaque, almost like long candlesticks. That's something that happens when you have severe frostbite. As Miles and his team gathered around, the man started speaking incoherently about getting onto a boat. And then, you know, he starts trying to pull himself off the ridge, which drops, you know, 10,000 feet into, into Nepal. The man they discovered was Australian climber Lincoln Hall. Hall had been incapacitated by exhaustion and altitude sickness the night before and declared dead by his team after hours of attempted rescue. His wife and kids back in Australia had already gotten the phone call that her husband, their father, was gone. I think the sun had probably woken him up because it was the sun had just hit the ridge there. He obviously had just kind of sat up within a few minutes. And quite honestly, I think if it was another few minutes later, he wouldn't have been there either because he spent the first hour that we were with him trying to get himself off the ridge down the side. And I think if, if, if we'd been there a few minutes later, I think he probably would have achieved that and we would have just kind of walked past and, and never known that he was there. So just hours from the summit, with the peak literally within eyeshot, Miles and his team were confronted with the same horrible decision put before so many other climbers that season. Do they stay and help this guy? A man who's clearly delusional, who might die anyway from exposure and frostbite. Or do they forge ahead to finish this thing they've set out to do? 
to get to the top of this mountain. At this point, it's Dan and Andrew and Jangbu and myself. And Dan and Jangbu have both been to the summit. And so there's a conversation initially there of Dan who says, well, do you guys just want to go up there and meet us down and we'll all go down together? That might seem like a logical solution. Let the guys who've already been to the summit help the man in distress. And the team members who haven't can go ahead on their own. But after some conversation, they decided that just wasn't safe to leave this guy with just two other climbers. After all, he was actively trying to pull himself over a cliff. So Miles' team agreed to stay, all of them, at least until help could arrive. They anchored Hall to the snow to prevent him from pulling himself over the ridge and gave him hot drinks, food, oxygen. And then there was sort of a waiting period. Because of the way the North Ridge is and it's so flat, the only way to move somebody who isn't ambulatory is with 10 to 12 guys. We didn't have that, clearly. Um, so we had sent a radio message down to the high camp, which we, we thought had gone through. Again, because we were kind of low budget, we didn't really have radios that worked and the batteries died. Their message had gotten through, and a group of Sherpas were on the way up. But with the radio dead, Miles and his team didn't know that. And they couldn't go anywhere until they were sure someone was coming. Half an hour went by, then 45 minutes. And then, out of nowhere, two other climbers appeared. They approached, moving at a fast clip. Miles' team tried to wave them down, but they said they didn't speak English and continued on. Later, it would turn out they did speak English. Miles doesn't want to villainize these guys, and he says that they probably had their own totally rational reason for doing what they did. Still, it was surprising to watch them move on toward the summit while he sat there, waiting his window of opportunity shrinking by the minute. Because it's such a beautiful day, because we're up there early. Um, we're strong, we have oxygen. Um, you know, even a one, two, three-hour delay probably would have been okay. But by the time we're up there for three becoming four and eventually five hours, and it's probably 11 in the morning, um, we know that we're too late in the day to go up there. Too late in the day. Too late for them to make it to the top and back down again before the weather turned. It's pretty devastating. Uh, and, and I think anyone in that situation, you, you're angry and you're upset and you're frustrated. Uh, and you don't perhaps have the sense of clarity that comes after a day or two in which you, you look at the situation rationally and it's the only choice. There's, no, there's absolutely no other option. So, yeah, when Miles talks about it now, he says there was no other option but to stay and help this climber even though it meant his team would never get to the top of Mount Everest. But of course, there had been another option. The option those climbers who passed them that morning took. The option the climbers who'd passed David Sharp just two weeks earlier had chosen. The option to get to the top. I got curious about this. How is it that Miles and his team could feel that there was no other option but to save Lincoln Hall, while so many other climbers felt just the opposite? that there was no other option but to leave a distressed climber behind? It's a question that I, I don't know that I have a single answer to. This is Joe Aravai. He's a professor at the University of Michigan, and he studies the psychology of risk and decision-making. He also happens to be a mountain climber himself. I called him up to see how science answers that question. Why would some people stop to help while others walk on by? 
Are some of us just innately better human beings, or is there another explanation? Arvai says the crux of the matter is that our minds don't always see choices as choices. A climber who passes another person in distress might be making some kind of a logical calculation about their behavior, but most of the time, this isn't really some belabored decision at all. What we see in the brain is this, this kind of balance between what we call system one, which is our emotional response to uh, a stimulus, and system two, which is a much more rational response. And that balancing act happens kind of intuitively. It's like this. Imagine that the decision-making part of your brain is a teeter-totter. The left side of the teeter-totter, that's where you put your system one input. Your emotions, your feelings, your gut instincts. The right side of the teeter-totter, that's where you put system two data. Facts and figures, pros and cons, stuff that's maybe a little more abstract. Normally, when you're just comfortably going about your day-to-day life, the fulcrum of that teeter-totter is right near the middle. So any emotional input you have around a decision, it's balanced out with logical data. Think about it like this. You're walking past a donut shop, and you think, man, those donuts look really good. I want one right now. But I'm also trying to cut back on donuts because logically I know they're bad for me. So the teeter-totter wobbles, lands on the data side, and you walk on by. Okay. Now imagine that you're walking past that donut shop again. But this time, you're under a bit of stress. You haven't had lunch, and you're getting hangry. Or maybe you're upset about something at work. Now what do you do? That emotional end of the teeter-totter takes on some extra weight, doesn't it? When you're under really stressful conditions, like, you know, climbing a mountain in life-or-death circumstances... It's not just that the emotional system one end of the teeter-totter takes on extra weight. It's like the whole fulcrum of that teeter-totter has moved. And suddenly it's going to take a lot more data for you to make a rational decision rather than an emotional one. Essentially, when you're stressed out, emotions win. I think there is, for a lot of people who are climbing, this kind of summit or plummet attitude. It's it's what you're there to do. I mean, you're, you're not there to get a tan. You're not there to drink coffee in the tents with, uh, with the Sherpas. You're not there to listen to the weather reports. You're there to summit. And I think that's what happens in the mountains, that even though you may be presented with data, uh, like seeing someone in distress, that visceral pull is just so powerful that you just can't beat it back. Okay, so our brain makes these decisions intuitively, And when we're under a lot of stress, our intuition is weighted towards making an emotional choice. For mountain climbers, that often means following through on that desire to get to the top. But that emotional drive can be overwhelmed by strong data. And maybe that's what happened to Miles and his team. Yes, they wanted the summit as badly as anyone else. Yes, they were under stress, and their mental teeter-totter was weighted towards making an emotional decision. But there was enough data there to tip the scales. Data that said, hey, this guy's alive. He's in distress. And if you don't step in to help him, you're going to watch him die. Right now. Right in front of you. And it's going to be your fault. Those people who passed by that morning and didn't stop to help, maybe they just didn't have that same sort of immediate data input to tip their teeter-totter. 
After all, Miles' team was already there, helping. Maybe Lincoln Hall didn't need more people. But no matter how we arrive at our decisions, there's always a need, after the fact, to find the logic in our actions, to rationalize them, to make sense somehow of a choice that's often more intuitive than sensical. So people will um, tell themselves stories that justify their position, and the more they're able to tell that story to, to themselves, uh, the easier it becomes to deal with that, with that feeling of dissonance. So, you know, the, the story that I think a lot of climbers tell themselves in, in a situation following uh, David Sharp or Lincoln Hall experience is, there's nothing I could have done. As human beings, we, we tend to convince ourselves of certain things, and then we look for the evidence to back up the point that we want to make. Um, and so, you know, had we walked past Lincoln Hall, I would be telling you a story of how, hey, we checked on this guy and he was fine and he was redoing his gear and we kept going and I didn't realize anything was going on. Whereas the reality of it was that clearly something was, was a problem here. Um, and when I spoke to a bunch of the guys who had walked past David Sharp a couple of weeks ago and I would speak to them uh, in the months following the expedition, every one of them had a perfectly rational reason for why they had walked past a guy in distress. Eight or nine different reasons, distinctly different reasons. So I think you do something and you look for reasons why you did it. Because otherwise, how could you um, continue to, to, to realize and to know that you had deliberately permitted the life of another to be lost because of your selfish endeavor? That's not something that people can live with. Lincoln Hall made it down off the mountain that day. The Sherpas came and half-carried, half-walked him to a medical tent further down the slopes. He lost the tips of his fingers and a toe to frostbite, but everyone got to the bottom alive. And Miles, he's still making sense of the whole thing. It's not a story that I really told, I guess, a huge amount after it happened. Um, and probably never in as much depth as you and I are discussing it at the moment either. What's the, when you did, when it did ever come up, what was the question that people always ask? Oh, they just want to know if you got to the top or not. It's really that simple. Um, which again is... is um, it's not something that I think climbing is really about, to be honest. Uh, and one of the most impressive guys I ever met on the mountain was a, uh, a British guy who was um, extraordinarily modest. And uh, he he was there to, to be part of that expedition and climb. And he made it um, an hour or two out of camp heading towards the summit. And he thought, you know, I've seen this. I've enjoyed this. This was great. And headed down perfectly happy um, because he had, he had done what he set out to do. He had challenged himself against this peak. The summit was utterly irrelevant in it. And, and in some ways, that was the, the most profound thing that I took home from that climb was that it, was, it really is about the process. It's not necessarily whether or not you check a box uh, on a list or not. Most of us won't ever go to Mount Everest. But we do make difficult decisions all the time. Decisions that pit our self-oriented, emotional desires against the well-being of other people. And the psychological mechanism behind those choices, that teeter-totter in our brain, it's the same. The way we look back and craft stories to make sense of our decisions is the same. So that kind of selfish or not admirable thing that we did, it was all for the best. It was a learning experience. In our minds, it was the only option. And we do it when we make difficult but selfless decisions too. When we recycle, even though the trash can's closer. When we stop to help the injured biker over winning the race. Those choices also demand a narrative. 
However grand or small, those stories help us to survive our decisions. That's producer Phoebe Flanagan. This story first appeared on Out There, a totally independent and now award-winning podcast that explores big questions through intimate stories that take place outside. It's hosted by Willow Belden. She decided to launch it after hiking the Colorado Trail in 2014, and ever since then has been hustling, making it work. Find more at outtherepodcast.com. This month marks 11 years since Miles Osborne's trip up Mount Everest. Lincoln Hall passed away in 2012 for reasons that had nothing to do with Everest. His book is called Dead Lucky. This piece was produced by Phoebe Flanagan and Willow Belden for the podcast Out There. Sound design by Chema Flores. His SoundCloud username is Little Weather. And if you listen to other podcasts, you may have heard about this month's Tripod campaign, where podcast hosts ask you to tell a friend about a podcast, any podcast. This could be a Facebook post, a tweet, or when you're telling someone about how getting stressed out makes you more susceptible to emotional reasoning, tell them you heard about it on a podcast, and then send them this episode. Everyone wants to have something to listen to. This season of The Science of Survival is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance, and... This season of The Science of Survival is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance, and critical decision-making. More at sloan.org. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX.